Welcome to PivotCast. This episode was recorded on December 5th at the Transat Club. This week's readings are from Gwen Benaway, Chris Bailey, Andrew Wilmot, and Amna Borsay-Philip. This episode features mature themes and strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Our readers tonight are Gwen Benaway, Chris Bailey, Andrew Wilmot, and M. Norbese Philip. We're going to start with M. Norbese Philip, who is an unembedded poet, essayist, novelist, and playwright who lives in the space time of the city of Toronto. She practiced law in the city of Toronto for seven years before becoming a poet and writer. She has published four books of poetry, including the seminal She Tries Her Tongue, Her Silence Softly Breaks, one novel and four collections of essays. Her book-length poem, Zong, is a conceptually innovative genre-breaking epic which explores the legal archive as it relates to slavery. Her most recent work is Blank, a collection of essays on racism and culture. Among her awards are numerous Canada Council and Ontario Arts Council grants, as well as the Pushcart Prize, Prize, the Casa de las Americas Prize, and the Lawrence Foundation Prize, the Arts Foundation of Toronto Writing and Publishing Award, and Dora Award finalist. Her fellowships include Guggenheim at McDowell and Rockefeller Bellagio. In 2001, she was an awardee of both the YWCA Woman of Distinction for the Arts and the Elizabeth Fry Rebels for a Cause Awards. She has been writer in residence at several universities and a guest at writers' retreats. Please give it up for M. Nerbese Philip. Um, I'm just going to read a couple, a couple of um, selections from Looking for Livingston, which is going to be out again. Um, Michael Nardon from Montreal. Um, there's a series that he and one of his colleagues, uh, um, they're putting out, and Looking for Livingston is coming out again. Um, I always say that you don't want to say which of you children is your favorite child <laughs> um, so too with poetry but this is this is one of my favorite works so I'll just read a couple sections from it and then I'll read an essay so this work in was it uh, sets out to investigate silence and uh, the initial publisher Mercury marketed it as a novel <laughs> but um, I always thought of it as a poem in prose and poetry and it investigates the imperial and colonial project. Was it the word in Mary's womb exploding or the silence of holy in the desert that was Elizabeth, seeded with silence, barren, shriveled womb refusing the swell and split in seed until silence welcomes the hungry word in again and again the womb oasis of silence blooms 
Friday, the 18th day of January, 1859, London, England. So this is a letter to David Livingston from his wife. Dear David, I have written so very many letters to you. I have now lost count. All I have received in return from you is silence and more silence. I know your discoveries are most important to you, to the nation, to God and our Queen. But what of me, David? Why is silence my lot? Why? I pray you leave the continent. Let it be free. Free yourself of it. It is damned and will but curse you for your labors. I who have traveled the Kalahari with a child at my breast and one in the womb to be with you want more than silence. I demand more than silence. I am entitled to more than silence. I have made my home my only home in your country, the country of your God, silence and how I abhor it. I am your wife, David, and I am jealous, very jealous. Can one be jealous of a country, a continent? Oh, yes, oh, very, very yes, and I am jealous of Africa, of the massive, impenetrable, and continental silence she has now come to symbolize to me. Oh, David, she has you. Her silence possesses you as mine never has. And you penetrate her up her rivers and falls through her undergrowth, her jungles. To what end? To discover what? My howling silence. When the silence of Shupanga claims me for the last time, David, you will weep for me and my silence, my very small silence that now flails at that larger silence. Oh, how I long to hear from you, David, to break the sentence of my silence. I bid you a hundred thousand welcomes and only one goodbye. I remain your dearest and most faithful wife in God and silence. Mary Livingston. Um, for younger people, I'm assuming everyone here, I know some of this is sort of ancient stuff, but uh, you know the story of David Livingston and Stanley goes off to find him. And when I was a child in Trinidad, um, the soft drink bottles, the caps, used to have heroes of the empire pictures and if you collected a certain number of heroes of the empire <laughs> you got a free soft drink or something <laughs> like that <laughs> and so uh, people are shaking their heads it's very true and um, when I set out to write this which began as the last poem in she tries her tongue which was about language I thought that silence was very abstract and and um, suddenly I had this idea to ground it in David Livingston, who was one of the heroes of the empire. <laughs> um, so that break in passion through into Gethsemane of word, grief, plenitude of, murderous with the mad in tongue, the babel of chatter, into erupt of Krakatau, Vesuvius, into Hiroshima and history, split by the divide in space and time, silence multiplies, 
isolate, separate, 40 times 40. The sully in betrayal between notes composes the improvise in silence, a symphony of much and much and much and more than absence of tongue, language, speech, of word, is silence. Where inquisition of break and havoc in word confronts the heresy within, silence accused. The anguish in beat of tongue, tortured to against on word, walled with erect in edifice, in structure, the Institute of Silence waits, its handmaidens hungered on silence, the word for word. Uh, let's see, maybe one more. I'll just read a section from the last bit where she meets Doctor. So the... I can understand why it was marketed as a novel. It's a sort of quest novel. There's someone called the Traveler who is searching for the source of her silence, and Livingston comes to represent it. And uh, she travels for the age of the universe, which is 18 billion years, and she finally meets him. Um, I had been searching for him for an eternity, it seemed, 18 billion years, the age of the universe. Advancing deeper and deeper into silence, my silence, picking up the odd rumor about him here and there, following tracks, some of them old and stale, long before I got to them. I had been locked up, tested, challenged, even betrayed in my search for Livingston. He would, quote, open a path to the interior or perish, end quote. I followed him, opening a path to my interior, or I would, as surely as he did, perish. And now here he was, here we were. Nothing that had happened to me along the way prepared me for this. He and I and silence, my silence. We looked at each other across a distance of some three feet, the infinite in time, my silence. I looked at my cheap digital watch. I had picked it up somewhere along the way. It was 2,800 hours exactly. I looked at him standing there with his guide, Susie, Chuma, and Gardner. You're new here, aren't you, I said, and didn't raise my hat. I didn't have one to raise, and even if I did, I wouldn't have raised it. Which of us reached out first? I don't know. It didn't matter. I took his hand and he mine, this old white man, tall, gaunt, my nemesis, half blind, bronzed by the African sun, the indiscriminate African sun, malarial, sick or crazy, it was all the same. Dr. Livingston, I presume, silence, I presume, silence. Dr. Livingston, silence, I presume, he and I, Livingston, the discoverer, riding on the adventure in the word that hacks and cuts and thrusts its way through the wet, moist climate of silence, plunging ever deeper into the heart of a continent and silence, the discovered silence, my silence, 
Or was it the other way around? I the discoverer, he the discovered. I had nothing to say to him. After 18 billion years of travel, what was there to say? What could I say? That I had found what I had started out with? Silence. How cocky he was, Livingston, and proud of his discoveries. His face brightened and his eyes shone with excitement as he boasted about his exploits. You must have heard of my journeys across Africa, he said, bringing Christianity and civilization to the natives. The queen ordered me for that, you know, and for my work against the slave trade. A terrible thing, that. Terrible. I let him go on for a while and said nothing. Then I spoke. You're nothing but a cheat and a liar, Livingston, I presume. Without the African, you could have done you could not have done anything, nothing. And what I did, I did all by myself. No guides, no artificial horizons, no compasses, nothing. Not even the good book, just me, me, and more me. That is true discovery, Livingston, I presume. No one, but no one had been there before me to visit, to discover my silence. And furthermore, while you thought you were discovering Africa, it was Africa that was discovering you. At these words, he bit hard on his bottom lip. I thought he would draw blood, but said nothing. I could tell he was very upset. By the way, I continued. Did you know those bloody South Africans bombed your, your town, the one named after you, Livingston, foe of darkness? Let's see, it was in 1987, I believe, in April to be exact, by the old calendar. Did they bomb it because it was named after me? I had caught his interest again. They never did like me preaching against their enslavement of the Africans, those Boers. He shook his head for emphasis. A nasty lot they were back then, a nasty lot. They still are, Livingston, I presume. They still are a nasty lot. But why do you always think you're the reason for everything? You really aren't that important. No, they didn't bomb it because of you, but let's put it this way, they would still be mad at you today. He sulked for a long time after this, just like a little boy while his helpers made us coffee and a meal. He did know how to travel in style, that Livingston. This is called Drowning Not Waving, and some of you may recognize it from the Stevie Smith poem. The quotation, I was much further out than you thought, and not waving but drowning. What did happen that bright sunny winter's day on the bridge? A bridge spanning a ravine in the heart of a city, in retrospect, my mind turns to the poet Stevie Smith. I was much further out than you thought and not waving but drowning. I had seen him from below, purple jacket neatly folded and laid on the ground beside him. He had put one sneaker short foot into the iron fretwork of the railing and bent over to tie a shoelace, or so it seemed to me. Perhaps he was pretending. What is that man doing? Was what I had asked myself as I looked up. What was it that attracted my attention? that bright morning. Thinking of instances where people drop items over bridges, I had moved to the edge of the path. If I had my cell phone with me, I would call the police, was what I was thinking later, as I walked past him on the other side of the bridge, giving him wi a wide berth. If I knew he was drowning, not waving, what would I have done? Would I have run up and tried to save him? I might have shouted. Even if I had called them, I tell myself later, the police would not have got there in time. And what would I have said? Hello, operator, there's a man here on the bridge and he's not waving, he is drowning. He is too far out and not waving, not doing exercises or yoga postures, as I had thought, he is drowning. What if I had left home earlier that 
or later that morning? What if I had stayed and had my morning cup of coffee and not set off in a somewhat irritated mood, having just had a testy exchange with a family member? What if I had stayed longer in the store selling Italian products where I had bought a lovely round box with a black, black and white Rococo design in which to pack a Christmas cake to send to a friend? What if, what if, what if? What if I could erase the sound, the sound of a body hitting frozen ground from several meters up? What if Newton's apple hadn't fa fallen to earth but instead was borne up by, by angels as I wish had happened with this man? who was drowning, not waving, whom I did not know, but whom I will remember always, and the sound of her body hitting the ground. He did not so much jump as fall over. Out of the corner of my eye as I turn again to see what he's doing, there's a flash of his pants. Perhaps he's no longer there. Perhaps a flash of his pants, perhaps, and he's no longer there. The only thing remaining, the sound, the thud. How soon after did it come? I do not believe what my eyes record. He is no longer there. Only the thud, and I am running back down the bridge to where he had been, drowning, not waving, not exercising, or perhaps he was, practicing the fall, his fall. Because when I first looked back after passing him, after thinking, if I had my cell phone, I would call the police. I see him lean over the railing, then come back to ground. Was he testing his courage, his fear, his commitment perhaps? Past him down at the other end of the bridge, I see another man. He's doing push-ups against the railings. Are they together? A moment of relief, the brain always hardwired for illusion, a respite from the anxiety. Perhaps they are together, exercising, not falling or jumping. He falls, head first to ensure his commitment to that which levels us all. His fall like Newton's apple would accelerate due to gravity, a force exerted on an object or body moving downwards as the earth rushes up to meet his weight. But whether he jumped or fell, the sound would have been the same, the same thud, the same moment of looking back, freezing, glimpsing, the flash of his pants. In retrospect, I think that perhaps he was throwing us off, me and the other two people on the bridge that day. What is that man doing? I take the question with me as I climb the wooden stairs from the ravine below where I had first seen him to the bridge above. These are the stairs people use to exercise, running or walking up and down. As you climb, you see the underbelly of the bridge, the iron struts that hold it up, the concrete footings. What is that man doing? I am breathless as I pass another walker on the stairs and pause at the top to catch my breath. What is that man doing? I speak out loud to myself, to the morning air, to anyone who will hear me. He stands where I first saw him from down below, except he now has both feet stuck in the iron railing. He appears to be doing exercises, every so often turning his head to look at where the only other people on that bridge are. I am there, catching my breath. There's the woman I passed on the stairs, and there's another man. He does not answer, but turns away after hanging his back on a light pole, as if turning his back on me and my question. He is a man, I think, better able to approach another man. Why doesn't he do something? Why does he turn from me and my question? The woman turns. Is she turning away from the man at the railing or simply doing what she had intended to do all along, head back down the stairs? There are three of us on the bridge that bright morning, three of us and a man who is not waving, who is drowning. Although none of us knew, 
What is that man doing to no one in particular except myself? People should be careful. That's how accidents happen, is her response. She, like me, did not see that he was drowning, not waving. The day is one of those hard, bright winter days with a typically big open sky, the air like a crisp, clipped accent. Although winter has not bitten as deeply as it usually does, the cold is recalcitrant. I recall the bridge. I also recall that although we had not had a lot of snow, the ravine has been, had been frugal, keeping what little there was, and within the shelter of the slopes, the ice, keeping faith with winter, had made the path slippery. That was why when I got to the footbridge, I decided not to venture any further into the ravine. I would climb the steps to the upper level, cross the bridge, and return home. What if instead of climbing the stairs when I did, I had continued walking further into the ravine? What if I had brought with me my crampons I used for walking on ice? I would have continued walking into the ravine and not climbed the stairs. On my return, I would have come upon the event in the past tense, stopped by the yellow police tape, forced to retrace my steps, to find another route home, not past the man on the bridge who makes me nervous, too nervous to walk close to him. I would not have thought had I walked into the ravine and not climbed the stairs when I did. If I had my cell phone with me, I would call the police now. Thank you. Keep it going for M. Nobrese. Thank you so much. Um, we now have uh, Chris Bailey. Chris Bailey is a fisherman from North Lake PEI. He holds an MFA from the University of Guelph. His work has appeared in Grain, Brick, Freefall, The Town Crier, and on CBC Radio. He's a past recipient of the Milton Acorn Award for Poetry, and his debut collection, What Your Hands Have Done, is available from Nightwood Editions. So please welcome Chris. Thanks. All right, thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Kinesia and Michelle, for having me here. And thank you all for joining me tonight uh, for the Bluegrass Christmas happening with, is it the Bullet Boys or the Bandit Boys? The Barrel Boys? The ba I was off both times. All right. Well, <laughs> my Lord. Great start. Uh, so, yes, I'm a fisherman from North Lake. And I have a tendency to write about my family. I, I fished with my uncle for a very long time, and my father as well, like off and on since I was 12 or 13. I used to take the car to work at 12 and uh, had to back it in because the plates were expired, and Dad didn't want to get in trouble for expired plates at the harbor. But anyway, my uncle, uh, he's an odd, odd duck, and I've got stories about him if you want for after. I can't guarantee you'll like him, but you might like the stories. But he also gave me the best bit of advice, which is where I got the dedication for the book from. And the dedication reads, it's for my family. And he told me this about life. And it was, uh, sometimes it's about doing what you can and f the rest. Uh, this is called My Uncle the Fisherman. Michael has nicknames for everyone and everything. Sea urchins are whore's eggs. Elmer Charlie Ivan is the crow because he can't leave nothing shiny with him. Brandon is <laughs> And someone else is named Ten Rows of Teeth. Michael's beard is the color of dreary clouds and his eyes are forever hidden by sunglasses. 
He smokes constantly. He sneezed once, and quoting an episode of The Simpsons, I told him sneezing was just his soul escaping. And by saying, God bless you, I crammed it back in. He told me to go f*** myself. Lobster fishing with the old man. He didn't care what state you were in, who you took home Friday night, or if condoms ever shielded your dick from accidental family trees. Like the one you fell from. Cradleless and too small to live and hungry for something no one ever managed to give you. No, your father cared only that you show up on time, ready to brave the cold spring Atlantic. Toss lobster in their pans, sober enough to measure properly. Remember to check for spawn. So, two things. I have a set list written in the front. And unlike my usual set lists, there are no doodles of Batman on this one. It's much more professional. Um, and the second thing is, I'm child six of seven. And uh, my parents really enjoy each other's company. <laughs> and I use my, my siblings like characters in a novel in this book, uh, mainly because... Uh, there's a middle section in the book which I won't be reading from because it's a long poem broken up into small parts about the death of my grandmother, and I used them in that. And, uh, and then I realized I'm just writing about people without introducing them. So I'm going to read some character sketches before I move on, too. Uh, so there's a, there's some character sketches named after my siblings, much to uh, some of their displeasure. Uh, this one's called Brandon. At his third going-away party drank beer, smoked smokes with the owner of the only Chinese restaurant in Surrey. Branding heading west on his own terms, to BC, not to Alberta to bitch seismic cable as your brothers before, or to work electrical like Mary Grace's ex. There was a storm a few nights before when he pointed his rig to the westward. Thunder like hoofbeats, gunshots. Lightning cracked the shell over the island, sky vein like ice against the poles in spring, used to get to the lobster gear when the winds don't blow right after winter. Imagine what it would be like back in the day, he said. A storm like this, you'd think the world was ending. The two of you beneath the eaves of your childhood home, rain coming down like beer shits from the weekend of a hard week. Not knowing what to say, you agree, refuse the cigarette when offered to you. Tommy. A hard man to get along with. Tommy will read this and know it's true, but Christopher, you're a goddamn city slicker now. What do you know? You never fought like he did. Tommy gun, named for his hands hard like fiberglass, like lead weights on the end of mackerel lines. He pumped a lobster trap like a basketball when loading the boat for setting day. Coffee in the other hand, lit cigarette loose on his lips, set the trap down at the wharf's edge and burned that smoke back as though it was filled with regrets. The debt he don't speak of. The plane that takes him from his kids he don't get the chance to know. So uh, another good thing, a good thing about having a book out is, so what people like to hear me read and talk about his family and work, but because I've got a book now, and you have to listen to me for more than three minutes at a time, I get to read from different things. So I get to read some relationship poems. So I'm going to read a couple of them. The Fisherman's Daughter. Moves with the sureness not seen in girls raised from the earth and taught what's beneath your feet will always be there for you. 
her legs long and slender, lithe stepping over the drunks strewn about this place, this house party, this seaside town with its broken streets and dead-end promises of something more than a chance to drop bogey, while the less fortunate stand nude with Gibran, facing the wind, melting into the sun, and she steps over the threshold, her legs carrying her to me. Her smile, like coming home after an oil patch winter, like putting the last trap on the stack of a long landing day, or finding a twenty if I'd forgotten in a pocket. Outside, the horizon burns with settling dusk, the air thick with cigarette smoke, torn mad by the buzzing of mosquitoes. In the house, she reaches out to me, but I'm not ready to come home, and winter clouds linger in the distance. The actor's wife. <clears throat> Violently beautiful, a barrage of cliché, bombshell, breathtaking, drop dead. I need a real man in my life, she says. Her words soft on the summer heat, rising through years of dismay and nights of boredom as her lips brush against my ear. The unwashed texture of her hair, her skin smells of three hours departed from the beach, burned by the sun. With sore shoulders, a back stiffened by the weight of herring nets, I tell her, She's in luck. I even shave sometimes. So my book is called What Your Hands Have Done, and that's not the original title for it. Some of you have heard this story before, and, well, sit tight. You're going to hear it again, and you'll like it just as much, I promise. Um, so I'm a big Warren Zevon fan, and there's a Warren Zevon poem in the book, which I will probably read tonight. And anyway, the original title was a line taken from Warren's Yvonne song, and the title was, Home is Just a Place to Hang Your Head. Now, I did my MFA at the University of Guelph, where I was very lucky and got to work with Dion Brand as my thesis advisor. And some of you know Dion. Dion is very brilliant, and she carries that brilliance so lightly, and she's so generous and patient with me. Like, it was just a marvel, really. And anyway, I... Um, she asked me what the book title was, and I told her, and she just said, no. <laughs> and I said, well, wh why? And she said, we need to talk about your title. It's too long, which is pretty solid advice. So I, uh, I went through the book, and I found a line that I liked that I thought could work as a title, and I wrote her back the next day, and I said, Dion, I think I fixed it. I think this is the title. And uh, I also, from time to time, whenever I'm fishing, I will send her lobsters if she would like some lobsters. Um, and she sent me emails with exclamation marks uh, maybe a couple of times in my life because she is very cool and very poised. Uh, usually it has to do with lobster if I get an exclamation mark. They've arrived. <laughs> um, uh, but it was, she was also delighted with the title. Not as delighted, mind you, but still, she was cool with it. Um, so this is the, the poem I got the title from. It's called Have a Cookie. The way your father tells you is simple, to the point. Speaking with the tone he'd use to say the direction of the tides, what your brother Tom in Fort Mac said, or describing the noise the truck axle makes. His hand on the thing sprouting from his neck. The doctor says it's probably cancer. They're cutting it off next week. A strip of paper towel in front of him. A cup filled with tea. A new pack of cookies that rattles when he reaches in, not looking at you. 
He endures your stunned silence, says, I asked if he had his pocket knife on him. He said he could do it right there if he wanted. Then, sit down, boy. Have a cookie. Not knowing what else to do or say, you sit. Take a cookie. The kind with icing in the middle. One half vanilla, the other chocolate. He fills ice cream dishes with these for long days on the boat. Something to snack on when working in the sun. You snap the cookie in two, then four, and stare a while at what your hands have done. So, uh, the book doesn't just stay on PEI. I've been other places, in case you were unaware. Uh, so I came to Toronto to do my MFA, and actually, Pivot was one of the first things I did whenever I came here. I came here before my first day at school. So I, um, I got loaded drunk with a buddy of mine, and I slept on his floor that night and went to Pivot. And then uh, I helped him pick hockey teams for some fantasy league he was in with people at work. And my knowledge came from like 2003, so I was of no use. Um, but anyway, the next day, I went to um, the Guelph Humber building on the North Humber campus. And I was just, I, I, I very, <laughs> I still get culture shock from time to time whenever I'm here. Because it's just, there's always something different compared to back home. And you got to take a step back from time to time. But I wrote this, um, the, uh, the first day I was in school, when I had this coffee that I'd wait to cool down to drink. And this egg wrap from the cafe thing they have up there. And I was like, I have to wait for this to cool down to eat? This is uh, bizarre for me. Um, and it's called, How Could You Forget This? Don't forget where you came from. Simple. Easy like dropping a slut rock tied to a herring net off the boat's stern, sidestepping rusted chains skidding past your feet against the deck's worn floor. So many boats on the water at night, your father calls it a city. Curses the bruises for using anchors instead of stones. They shred the nets using them things. The pain in your back, your arms from a night spent shaking nets, herring piled past your ankles. Brandon forgot to open the hatches. 30 minutes sleep in 48 hours. Set and haul back while the herring blocks blood red on the sounder. Your father telling you, the work is hard and the smell follows you, but the money doesn't stink now, does it? That bathing after work, you're knocking a few scales off. How could you forget this? Now with your first ever Starbucks coffee, facing a four-story four wall of greenery as it filters the air in this school building. Clean air in your diesel lungs. A book in your softening hands. This is in the mountains. Snow falls through amber street lights, and she wants to stand out ankle deep and cold, shiver against the mountain breath laced with ice and a winter on its way, as she smokes the joint you watched her roll from bed. She is seven different kinds of naked. You are the same. In your head, there's the unusual shape, the imprint the two of you leave in forming drifts. Sweat hardening to frost in your skin, sorry, sweat hardening to frost in your hair, cool, crackling along your skin. So, um, whenever I was living in Toronto, I was seeing a woman in another place, and uh, so I take the GO train quite a bit, and I found out that, like, where you drop people off, like, you're in the car and you get out of the car. Um, she told me they're called Kiss and Goes, and that's all you really need to know about this title, or this title, this poem. Uh, it's called, She Wants to Make Sure You're Sure. 
another kiss and you don't want to go. She talks about girls. She's interviewed to babysit her daughter. Uses the words young and beautiful. And he wants so bad to kiss her again. To describe the feeling of looking over your shoulder. To see her making soup for lunch. That smile she gave you as sunlight slanted in at her back. You want so bad to pull that feeling full and whole from your pocket and put it on the dash so she can see, but you can't. So you stare out the window at cars stalled in in traffic, their colors diminished by the gray November light. Well, it appears we've come to, according to my set list, the Warren Zevon poem. Um, So Warren Zevon, best known for his song Werewolves in London, Um, Somebody asked him how he felt about that, and he said his night would feel incomplete if he didn't end it with three minutes of howling. Um, (laughs) He was friends with Paul Muldoon, who wrote a song with him called My Rides Here, from the album My Rides Here. And whenever Warren died, Paul Muldoon wrote a poem about him and for him called The Silly House Stride. I remember reading this years ago and thinking, it's not that great. Um, and I'd, I'm sure I'd be corrected fiercely if I were to look at it now. But uh, I remember whenever I read it, I thought, well, if Paul Muldoon can do it. Uh, it was like Warren Zevon. Remember the nights you tried to live like Zevon, all whiskey and women and avoidance, living in the L.A. streets of your mind, a four-letter world with palm trees instead of pine. When you were just an excitable boy, not naming the women whose sisters loved you, accidentally, like martyrs in the errant darkness by abandoned railroad tracks. Remember the women leaving, wakes of perfume trailing as they smiled, you tied to them now in ways that don't make sense. Remember drinking like a desperado, but unable to slake it completely, the thirst that's killed so many of your brothers, hating yourself for it. The liquor flooding the space between you and those around you, the distance grown vast and freezing, a tundric waste where sunlight on snow is too much for even the birds. And I've got one left, and I'm going to f*** off and sit down. Um, It's called Your Father's Rope. And it's one of those things I realize, I looked at the first line here, I very seldom write about writing or the act of writing, and it... Because I have a hard time with it, and it's whatever, this is it. Your father's rope. You want to write about something different, but can't. Take the rope, fathom it out, and you'll see how little slack there is. A 14-hour drive is nothing to the salt-crusted coils that hold you. Tradition. The way your uncle Michael puckered his lips so his cigarette became a smokestack. Him a slow-moving train. The tapping of rain on your oil jacket. The diesel rotting your lungs and your hands, how they seize up in the cold. Twenty-four, and all the aches and pains of your 62-year-old father. You are his son. This is his rope, his anchor, either holding you back or keeping you safe from changing tides. You know about anchors. They shred nets, and those around you catch just as much or less as you. Thank you. Andrew Wilmot is a writer and editor based out of Toronto. He has won awards for screenwriting and short fiction with credits including Found Press, The Singularity, 
glitter ship turned to ash, auger, and a small handful of specfic anthologies. As an editor, he's worked with small and mid-sized presses across Canada, and his co-publisher and co-EIC, editor-in-chief, alongside editors Michael Matheson and Chineno Onwalu of the online magazine Anathema Publishing Limited. Spec from the margins. Books he's worked on have themselves taken home multiple awards from the Sunburst Awards, the Eisner Awards, and most recently, the Shirley Jackson Awards. The Death Scene Artist is his first novel. Find him online at andrewwilmot.ca and on Twitter, hating everything about Twitter, at A.G.A. Wilmot. Welcome, Andrew Wilmot. Uh, thank you, Kinesia, for inviting me for this. Thank you, both of you, uh, for putting this on. Uh, this is my first time at Pivot, and it's absolutely lovely. And I'm only a little bit nervous, and that's only a lot of a lie. Um, also, I wanted to say thank you for friends who've come, especially um, Paul Vermeersch, who was kind enough and trusting enough to uh, give this book a home. Um, my agent, Kelvin, who is probably booing me internally. <laughs> and and though she's not here, I'm going to thank her at every chance I get because editors don't get the love they deserve. Jen Sukvong Lee, who edited the living hell out of this book over a multiple month period. Um, yeah, this is a weird book. It's definitely going to be a bit of a tonal shift tonight. The uh, best way to describe it is it's uh, a little bit of a up anti-love story uh, with someone who is comfortable throwing themselves on the hand grenade one day and being stabbed in the gut the next and doing it all for the love of cinema and their absolute inability to form lasting relationships as a result. And it's also a horror story about body dysmorphia, envy, and basically trying to fit someone's ever-changing ideal at the expense of yourself through wearing other people's skin. You know, it's a time, it's a tale as old as time. So this is a um, chapter called No One Special. The very last thing I expected when flipping channels this past Friday evening was, was for you to come crashing into my life again. But there you were, on my television screen, all tucked out and walking a red carpet for a premiere somewhere, North Hollywood from the looks of it. You appeared sheepish, looking around uncomfortably with your hands stuffed in your pockets, like you desperately wanted to make a run for it as you were sandwiched impossibly between Eden Grant from Access Hollywood and multiple award-nominated filmmaker Andreas Rain. Cameras flash an electrical storm. I've watched as you put a hand up over your eyes to shield them while your co-stars filed into the theater behind you. I'm here with director Andreas Rand, the premiere of his new film, Child of Honor, Eden said to the camera, half shouting above the cries of the gathered crowd. Andreas, two years ago your film Only the Dead Know, both critical and commercial success, was left out of the running for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, a glaring oversight to many. What do you think your chances are of Child of Honor landing a coveted spot on next year's ballot? Rain, dressed in his usual combination of dark blue jeans, a black button-up dress shirt with a salmon pink scarf tied loose around his neck and oversized egg-shaped sunglasses that covered most of his face, crowded closer on Eden's mic, almost pushing her out of frame. You know, he said, I don't like to speculate. If my work isn't to the Academy's taste, I'm not going to try and change their minds. I'm just going to keep doing what I do best. But if you really want to know the film's chances come award season, this guy, he glanced back then, saw you, 
and pulled you in front of the camera. He threw his arms around your shoulders. He hugged you. This is the man to ask. He's seen it all. D here is one of the industry's unsung heroes. Do you know how many films he's been in? Tell her, D. And like a deer in headlights, you just stood there, stunned, not at all sure what to do or say. You just shove your hands back in your pockets and glance into the camera for a split second before awkwardly staring down at your shoes. Phew, I guess, you muttered, your shyness palpable. Rain laughed boisterously. He's modest. Do you have any idea how much arm twisting I had to do just to convince him to come out here tonight and celebrate with us? He laughed again, patted your arm while you grew increasingly uncomfortable. I could see you anxiously doing the math inside your head, estimating just how many eyes were on you at that moment, televised or not. This guy's a harder worker than anybody I know. He's been in dozens of films, hundreds. He's, well, there's no two ways about it. He's the world's greatest living red shirt. Eden gave her best punctuated television host chuckle. What in the world is a red shirt, she asked. For more than 20 years, Rain continued, D here has been dying like nobody else. He spoke excitedly, like he discovered you, like he was somehow responsible for your entire career up to this point. This guy, Rain said. Then I watched in disbelief as Andreas Rain, a man who'd been called on more than one occasion the affable reinvention of Stanley Kubrick, an auteur in the most exhausting sense of the word, swept you into his arms and gave you one of the most emotional bear hugs I've ever seen, arching back, nearly lifting you off the ground. You did it, he said, practically crying into your shoulder, making a show of it. You gave my story its soul. Now, Eden's no fool. She's been around long enough to know a story when she sees one. She watched as a director named Oscar's biggest threat in last December's, uh, December's Empire magazine lost all composure in the arms of someone who, just moments prior, wasn't unknown, and she stepped up to the plate. How do you respond to that, Dee? How does it feel to know what an important part you played in bringing this film to life? The camera pulled away from Rain then, who made a show of things using the tip of his scarf to wipe tears from his eyes, and focused, instead, on you. How did you handle it? True to form, you went a little red in the cheeks, offered a noncommittal shrug, and said, it was just a small role. I really didn't do much. I just showed up on set and did what Mr. Rain asked me to do. My boy, Rain said, his large hands on your shoulders as if you were gripping the top rung of a ladder. You did so much more than that. So, so much more. With that, he let go of you and headed into the theater with the rest of the cast and crew, leaving you alone on a red carpet with Eden for your moment of, I don't know, glory, I guess. I should probably, you began, nodding to the theater's entrance. Eden, however, continued talking. If she noticed your discomfort, she certainly didn't let it stand in the way of her curiosity. Wow, she said, that must feel pretty great, hearing your praises sung with such enthusiasm. Yeah, I guess, you said. He said you've been acting for 20 years. Where have you been hiding all this time? Is this your first major Hollywood production? No, but listen, I really should. I'm not sure I should let you go. She fake laughed again. There's so much more I want to ask you. Who else have you worked with? What's next for you? I really need to get going. You started walking toward the theater's entrance. Then, as if to deflect whatever follow-up she might have had, you turned back around and said, Honestly, I'm no one special. I don't suppose you know what it does to a person to hear those words uttered by someone they once loved. Five times I watched that interview, listening for some sign or tell in your voice, something to indicate you weren't being as serious as deep down I knew you were. But each time I got to the end, the words stung anew. 
I'm no one special. And forgive me for asking, but what the f*** was I? For three hours I let it fester, what you proclaimed, live on television, to an entire world. I drank and shouted and cried out loud until my upstairs neighbor started pounding on the floor, threatening to call the cops if I didn't cut the noise. But I wasn't listening to them. I was too busy feeling pissed off and hurt and not nearly as important as I had been trying to convince myself I had been for going on a year now. After everything we'd seen and done together, the lives we'd appropriated, all those bodies left buried, half, uh, half buried in the dirt, it was like you were stabbing me in the heart all over again. It's obvious now. I was blowing things out of proportion. We're X, and you're free to feel whatever the fuck you want about who you are and what you've done. But to see you on television in about as uncomfortable a position as I could ever imagine for you to be in, and hear you so willfully tear yourself down in front of millions while someone was trying desperately to pull you into the spotlight, yeah, you might say it hit a little close to home. The whole time we were together, I lived in your shadow, not the other way around. It was your sandbox, not mine. You made that very clear. And if you were, are, nothing, then I... That night, clear heads prevailing, I registered this blog and started stitching the past back together again. It began as a writing exercise. I wanted to see if I could go back to it, to the very beginning and the very first time you spoke to me while I sat next to you on top of an audio equipment trunk and we shared that raspberry croissant you'd snatched from the craft services cart. I wanted to remember what it was I'd been so attracted to in the first place. The more details from that day that I gradually pieced together, the clearer the overall image became. It started to feel like here I was and there you are and nothing at all had changed, like time had stopped for us and you were still pointing and laughing at the seeds stuck between my teeth as I rummaged through some poor production assistant's unguarded purse, searching desperately for dental floss or a toothpick or hell, even a credit card, something, anything I could use to clean up my smile. It's okay, you said, beaming, revealing your own set of raspberry-spotted teeth. You closed your mouth, ran your tongue back and forth across your teeth, and smiled again, and it was spotless. I blushed. You rested your hand on my thigh. If we only had a few minutes more, a few seconds even, we might have... Maybe... You say you're no one special, but I've done the numbers. Television and film combined, all online aliases accounted for. 763. 763 on-camera deaths in your 21-year career. That averages out to approximately 36.3 deaths a year. Throw in uncredited one-day walk-ons as a background body in the periodic disaster film or zombie apocalypse, and that number rises considerably. Andreas Rain was right. You are the greatest living example of cannon fodder to ever grace the screen. And I wonder, and I'm not sure why I never asked you this when we were together, but as you stumble ever closer to your 46th birthday, I have to know, why? Why, after 21 years, are you still doing this to yourself? You sink into someone else's shoes, put on a good show, give death everything you've got, and for what? Whatever. You want to say you're no one special, that's your prerogative. I'm not ready to follow you to the gates of obscurity. There's been enough of that already, and as it is, I'm running out of time to tell our tale. I never wanted the spotlight for myself, not really, but I did want. I just wanted to stand in enough of it that you could see me. You probably won't read any of this. I doubt you're able to sit in one place long enough to make it to the end of even a review of any of your films. But if by some chance during what I'm sure will be an amazingly meta midlife crisis, you do manage to stumble upon this blog, know this, you're more special than you give yourself credit for. Also, you're an asshole. Thank you.
Thanks, Chris. So excited to bring up our final reader of the night. Gwen Benaway is a trans girl of Anishinaabe and Métis descent. She has published three collections of poetry, Ceremonies for the Dead, Passage, and Holy Wild. Her fourth collection of poetry, Aperture, and a creative nonfiction book, Trans Girl in Love, are forthcoming in 2020. Please give a warm pivot welcome to Gwen. I have problems with microphone stands because I'm not butch enough for them. I feel like there should be like some kind of butch quota that you need to meet in order to be able to use microphone stands. And then if you don't meet that quota, like if you're femme enough, um, a butch person is automatically nominated to help you with it. And so I'm looking at you, Kinesia, <laughs> because you let me down right there. It's okay. You know what? I figured it out for myself, so thank you. Um, does anyone read the New York Times? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, did anyone see that piece by Andrea Long Chu recently? Andrea Long Chu is a very well-known trans girl academic um, from the States, and she wrote an op-ed, I think it was a week ago, about her upcoming gender confirmation surgery and how it wouldn't make her happy but also she decided to describe her imagined future vagina as an open wound that would never heal. And that upset me <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, and then she also said that there were no good outcomes from transitions. And a lot of trans girls, it's sort of like that moment where Elderon is exploded in Star Wars, you know, and they're like a million voices cried out in despair. So she like published that op-ed and a million trans girls got very, very angry. And I was one of them. Um, so I've been writing an essay in response to that. Kind of in response to it. About a bunch of other things also. Um, and I'm going to read part of that essay for you tonight. And that might be horrible for you. And if it is, I'm sorry. But really, social conventions, it's hard for you to leave now. You're kind <laughs> of stuck here. And also, if you did leave in this moment it would be seen as transphobic. <laughs> so you're f***ed. <laughs> and you better hope that I'm a good writer and that this essay is okay. And if it's not, you will never be allowed to tell me otherwise. <clears throat> Social justice, thank you. <laughs> Transphobia isn't just a way of thinking. It's a way of doing as well. A practice which makes the lives of trans women often feel impossible. The doing of transphobia is why cis people ask trans women to write op-eds about their future working towards an agenda which forcibly ejects us from the category of human into the monstrous and constructed. Resisting the practice of transphobia is work that most trans women have to do. Though it seems that some transphobia seem to escape the worst, that some trans women escape the worst of it because of things like wealth, whiteness, or light skin privilege, and access to institutional resources. People seem to think that getting surgery and having a is an escape hatch from transphobia. It's not. Transphobia has a way of looking at trans women that refuses reality and superimposes its damning assumptions over us. To transphobia and its doers, my is just a mutilated 
You can't trust my self-reports about my post-surgical happiness because being trans is a cult and I'm trying to recruit new members. My p***y is never real because I'm never real. Something that new lovers remind me of frequently. Guys like to ask if my vagina is normal, as if there is a normal, as if every vagina looks alike, as if normal is good for us, something we should aspire to. What they're really asking me is if my vagina will get them off. Will they be able to forget I'm a tranny underneath them? Can they marvel at how it's almost like the real thing? My p***y is always someone's idea, a concept, instead of a body part. I was in a bad relationship with a cis guy before I had surgery. He said and did profoundly transphobic things during our two-year relationship. In return, I've dragged him in poems and essays across the internet. I feel bad about the things I've said about him. His transphobia and my response to it is an open wound in my body that never heals. I shouldn't have expected more from a mostly straight Midwestern cis guy who was raised strict fundamental Christian, but I did. Love has a ruthless cruelty that hate can never match. He had some thoughts about my vagina and my womanhood. We hung out from the start of my transition until three months after surgery. If I'm honest with myself, part of why, part of my desire to get surgery was to finally prove to him that I was a woman. Admitting that I got surgery, in part, because of him, is terrifying. Because one of the most common transphobic attacks I hear is that I transitioned to get f***ed by straight men. Which is stupid, because if anyone's been f***ed by a straight man, woo, that is not worth it. A few months ago, yeah, you know what I'm saying. I like the people who laughed at that. The people who were like, yeah, you're right, they're sh God damn. Who would want that? Literally no one. Um, thank you. Thank you, both of you. You're my people. The rest of you are shit. A few months ago, a stranger on Twitter tweeted at me that trans women are obsessed with straight men dating slash f***ing them because we're still men and sexually promiscuous predators. He said the same thing to me, that I was trying to use his desire slash dick slash masculinity to validate myself as a woman over and over again throughout our relationship. My last words to him were, your dick doesn't make me a woman. But I can't deny that part of my transition was pushing myself to be more feminine, hoping he would finally treat me like he treated cis girls. I went into surgery fast, setting a new record for approvals, because I wanted to be entirely myself before he left to do his field research abroad in Spain. He was an anthropologist. That was a mistake. <coughs> Trans girls, yeah, right? F Why was I dating an anthropologist? Like, that's the big red flag right there. Woo! It's fine. I made him a field study. <laughs> he got screwed in that exchange. Don't laugh so hard. You draw me into banter, and banter is dangerous. Nobody should be amused by this. You should all be horrified and frozen and abject terror. She's talking about her It's a tranny. God, nobody should be laughing. Okay, someone's going to tweet this later. Please, please, tweet it. <laughs> I'm treating it like, now. F*** you for that bitch joke, girl.
Yeah. Okay. All right. We're back in. We're back in. All right. Come together. <sighs> Trans girls are often caught in double binds that we can't get out of without losing our humanity. His claim about my womanhood is violent but persuasive. It tells a cruel truth to hide an even tru crueler lie. When he told me that I wanted him to f me to validate myself as a woman, he's not entirely wrong. Being desired and loved by the people that you desire and love is validating. It tells you that you matter and that you're worth something. Wanting to be affirmed as yourself by the people you love the most isn't pathological. Proof that my womanhood is fake, but evidence that I'm just an ordinary girl, human and flawed as the rest of us. He wasn't special in his evaluation of my desire and womanhood. Cis men have a long relationship to controlling women's bodies for their pleasure. They like to play with our bodies to feel temporarily powerful, displacing their insecurities by tying us up and pushing their cocks into our mouths. I won't pretend that I don't enjoy feeling powerless sometimes with men, finally allowed to be momentarily free from the caretaking and politeness. The danger with surrendering your body to a man is that they often forget that our bodies are not just an object, but the space where we live. For trans girls, our bodies are the only spaces we're allowed to take up and call ours. When we say that it feels good to be f***ed in the space of our bodies and that we want to feel pleasure, we're told that we're sick. My ex-boyfriend confused my gender with my humanity, believing that he c I could never be a woman and my desires were desperate pleas for recognition as something only he could make me. Society and its institutions treat trans girls with the same logic. When Andrea Longchu writes that her surgery and won't make her happy, it's revealing that first she must give up the possibility of pleasure and joy to win the right to argue that trans women should control their own bodies. I don't know why I wanted surgery. My is not what I thought I wanted. It's more than I wanted. Trans girl lives are impossible to explain because we haven't stopped living them yet. We're caught in the double bind of trying to stay alive while everyone demands we justify our right to live. But no one can explain themselves fully. Trans girls shouldn't ask, be asked to give accounts of ourselves that sacrifice our humanity to prove our gender. We must be allowed to live our way to the truths only the dead know. I wish I could explain to him why he hurt me so much. It wasn't just that he refused to see my gender as anything but a disease, or that he could only understand my desire as a threat to his sexuality and masculinity. In that moment, our bodies wrapped together on my sofa, and my hand tracing the line of his cheek down to his lips, he told me that I could never be as human as he was. I wasn't allowed to love or desire. I couldn't be a woman without first admitting that I was sick and needed someone, a man, a doctor, his cock, to heal me. I didn't need his validation to be a woman, just as I don't need to explain my life to you. My body isn't a theoretical argument which unifies the disparate complexities of being a trans girl. My desire isn't a sickness. Surgery didn't make me more of a woman. My isn't a wound. It's just a f And that's all I want it to be. A guy once told me that coming inside of me was like in a dead end. His words have stuck with me. My 
empathy is a dead end because it's just a hole going nowhere. It doesn't have a purpose, like a cis woman's vagina. I can't get pregnant. There are some obvious problems with seeing my vagina as a dead end, though. First, you must believe that all cis women can get pregnant and that the only point of a vagina is either male pleasure or reproduction. More importantly, you must ignore my pleasure and the ways that my body isn't just a perverse substitute. What's wrong with being a dead end? Dead end are where the roads disappear and its logic disintegrate. Dead ends often mark the boundary between the wild and the tamed, the foothills of the mountains or the last grove of trees beyond the suburbs. Dead ends are where you're forced to get out of your car and ask yourself how you got here and where you're trying to go. They are moments of possibility and chance that break up the relentless productivity of capitalism. In a funny way, being dead means being free. Having no purpose is often considered the point of vacations or getaways. We long to be dead because we want to escape the daily pressure of our lives. I look forward to class ending because it means I can do what I want. My vagina is a detour that doesn't lead anywhere productive. F***ing me is just about getting off, and I like that. I don't need to make a family or build your nation state. My is where the road disappears. It's neither revolutionary or radical to fuck me. You can be a transphobe while having sex with a trans girl. Sometimes people want to make sex into a factory for a new world, as if sliding your dick back and forth inside me meant we could break out of the ordinary and into liberation. Projecting the entire past, present, and future of human struggle into my isn't a good idea. I want to celebrate dead ends. I want to talk about how holes are great. I want to get a trophy for being second best. I don't need my vagina to be perfect for it to be real. I don't have to make you so hard that every cis girl is forever erased from your mind. It's okay that I'm a messy middle, a something that isn't trying to be in everything. Throughout my life, the spaces that have meant the most to me are the spaces that no one wants to be inside. It's the other worlds that make this world livable for me. Dead ends are where I find my power, gather my will, and heal from the violence of being forced into the subhuman by forces that will always be greater than me. I believe in the subaltern as a way of life, a practice of reworlding that stands outside the dominant world's constructions and boundaries, not a theory of being a trans girl, but a practice. I want to imagine an ethic of trans girl life, a way of being an embodied prayer instead of an identity. If my is a dead end, his is a weapon that's trying to kill me. How miraculous is it that I don't die? How wonderful is my that it refuses to be anything but what it is? How strange is it that an open wound which never heals is the wellspring of pleasure and experience? Call me a goddess and worship my faithful and heartless lovers. I hope Andrea Longtrue writes another post-surgical op-ed about the joys of masturbation with her new vagina. But even if she doesn't, her descriptions of our vaginas as wounds which never heal doesn't erase the many experiences of trans girls like me who find pleasure and joy in our more importantly, I hope for an audience of cis people that doesn't expect or allow a single trans woman to speak for all of us. 
There's a way out of explanation and into simply living for trans girls, but I don't know how we find it. I do know trans liberation doesn't come from theory or op-eds and prestigious publications. As Marsha P. Johnson once wrote on a sign, come out of your ivory towers and into the streets. I take these words to be a call to revolutionary action against the forces that oppress us, but I also see them as a reminder that trans girls have always lived in the hopeful margins of the street. Our lives and politics are born out of a somewhere elsewhere. We do not belong to the nation state and have never been its citizens, no matter how promiscuous its claims to offering justice and safety are. about the authors or their work, visit pivotreadings.ca.